How does it sound to you? You sound not clear and sort of... Not good. Yeah. Hmm. Wait, uh, What about just this? Um, I can't really tell the difference. Okay. I believe we're recording this call. I think this might be helpful to people right now. I know it would be helpful to me because I just got back from D.C. last night and I've been in a cave all week making that yeah. other podcast and... I have no idea what's going on, and I'm just trying to catch up on Twitter, and I'm confused and uh, frightened. Oh. So, um, yeah. okay, uh, I'm going to try one more thing. Oh, my God. I don't think I've gotten any better in the interim at responding to people when they tell me they're confused and frightened. <laughs> I just like, oh, Your steadiness is what has been comforting. Your consistency <laughs> in being unable to comfort is itself comforting. Well, I don't know what to do with those emotions, but if you'd like to talk about facts. Uh, <laughs> Jim, that was a year ago. Yeah. That yeah, was our first was... call a year ago. What what day was it? March 12th? March 13th, 2020. That was one year ago. I was holding my cell phone in my shower. Right, because you, th- you thought a shower was like where radio... Yeah, you were like, oh, where should I go to record an interview? Um, the most echoey room possible. <laughs> well, it normally doesn't matter how it sounds, and I've learned since then that it matters. So, Jim, this is Social Distance, a podcast we started one year ago when I called you with that phone call where you can hear the panic in my voice. And today, you and I are going to talk about the last year, what it's been like, what we learned. What, between that phone call and this one. <laughs> Has anything changed? Did we learn anything? Uh. Yeah, so that is the um, subject of today, is a little reflection on the past year, and um, then a special guest. But we'll get to that. Um, so in addition to that phone call, I, I found a little thing. I have a little post-it that I've kept in my notebook this whole year. And I wrote it that day when we had the phone call. Can I read it to you? Please. I had been taking notes that day and I had asked you like, what is going on and what should I do? And you told me what was going on and also to go get supplies because I was gonna need to basically hide in my house for a couple weeks. So this is what my notes were from that conversation. CVS, cold medicine, Tylenol, which equals acetaminophen ibuprofen, which equals Advil, Kleenex, toilet paper, food, next two weeks. That that was my supply list that you told me to get. Yeah. And then there's a note that says 40 to 70%, 1.5 million Americans are about to die. That idea was really shocking at the beginning. Um, I, I don't think I said it really definitively, right? I was like, that's a worst case. Yeah, yeah. Project. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 40 to 70%. That was your estimation of how many people in this country would get it? Would get infected. Uh, and where yeah. are we on that? Yeah, I think we're above 40% by a lot of calculations. But the case fatality rate is lower than we expected. So we have 520,000 roughly confirmed deaths, and we have many that we know are not confirmed. So we're probably in the very roughly six or 700,000 deaths mm-hmm. of, of you know directly COVID-related, not to mention other health issues that have gone on. So 
yeah, I I don't think that ultimately is too far off. Yeah, I mean, it, it's so interesting to think about this because this was also the time before masks, you know? At that moment, we didn't know that I was going to need to get masks. Um, no, right? Yeah. You know, uh, I've like stared at this little post-it a lot this year. Were you thinking at the time, like, this guy's crazy, but... No, I was terrified. Something true about it? No, I believed you. And I was really, yeah. really afraid. Um, just incidentally, there's also a big... Um, somehow there's a big peanut butter and jelly stain on this post-it note, um, which is kind of embarrassing. Like, it's kind of <laughs> like, I want this to be a doc, like a really somber document. And actually, it's just like a napkin for like... And a reminder that most of what I've eaten the last year... His peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Anyway, in some ways that uh, prediction was accurate. And in some ways, you know, there were some things that are worse than we thought. There are some things that are better than we thought. But the scope of this being like, basically what you were telling me that day was a huge disaster is coming. I I remember that day, we we took a walk um, one day and you said, you know, I think a lot of people at that time were thinking like, oh, a couple weeks, like, maybe a month, this is wild. And you were like, no, this is a year. This is going to be a year. Yeah. And I remember thinking of being sort of surprised and also just thinking, my question to you was, what is that year going to look like? And now we know. Now we know what the year looks like. So let's- <laughs> Now we let's... know. It, but, but it also, people are still asking about the, the year ahead. And I feel like a lot of the questions from- you know, this past year about prediction or informing the way I'm thinking about what's ahead of us too. So right, hopefully right. it's helpful to look back on right. what we got wrong and what we got right and how right, we can right. do better. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk. Should we talk about those things? Let's talk about what we got wrong. Okay, all right. Well, that was a quick segment. Uh, moving on to what we got right. <laughs> um, I, I'm so glad that your ego has survived this year's attack. <laughs> it's really... Um, you know, that'll be the last thing to go. When your <laughs> ego falls, that's when we'll know <laughs> we've hit the um, end. Um, okay, so one of the things I got wrong, I way overestimated the amount of Purell I would need. Yeah, that was... I had a huge... I actually bought two huge bladders of Purell because that was the only thing that was available. I've only used one bladder this whole year. I just finished the the first bladder this today. You know, the real thing that was wrong in the beginning, and I still do have questions about it, People, including government officials, public health officials, told us not to wear masks at the beginning. Yeah. And it seems like they were lying. Well, I think both of these things are one and the same. Your question of Purell and the question of masks mm-hmm. are definitely the biggest miss in those early months. If I could go back and change one thing, it would be accepting that dogma um, without questioning it more. Yeah. Because it seemed like this was going to be more a surface transmission droplets that were landing places and we were touching them and infecting ourselves as opposed right. to airborne. Mm-hmm. Um, it Then we started to learn, oh, it's more on spectrum where it's sometimes in the air and sometimes on surfaces. And now mm-hmm. we've pushed much more heavily toward airborne. And I wish that um, I'd been more open to the idea of we should be doing masks and sanitizing things until we know mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm. I should have seen the way things were spreading so quickly and realized that couldn't just be by surfaces alone, that hand sanitizer wasn't going to stop this. But I continued to go around New York just thinking if I didn't touch things, Mm -hmm. that 
I'd be fine. Mm-hmm. And we were, things were really spreading. I did an, yeah. I did interviews. Remember yeah. when you gave Bootsy COVID? I might have. I mean, it might have happened right around that. It, the timeline is a little bit later, but she was in the ICU three weeks after we did an interview in which we just all lathered our hands up and kept moderate distance, but were not masked. And Bootsy was a person you talked to uh, right at the. <laughs> but Bootsy is alive and well, thank God. But just for context, Bootsy Plunkett is um, a person you talked to at the very beginning of the pandemic, and you were sort of um, doing a segment with her on the Colbert Show where you you were kind of giving basic COVID information, but you did that in a closed room with a bunch of crew, and three weeks later she was in the ICU. So I'm not yeah. saying, I mean, I know I just said that you gave her COVID. We don't actually know that. But obviously that was a high, well, we now know that that was an extremely uh, high risk scenario for transmission, but we did not know that at the time. Yeah, it was March 9th. There, the first case was confirmed in New York um, five or six days before. Yeah. We had no sense that it was widespread and we had no sense that we should be wearing masks. So it, yeah, I, I have a lot of regret that I didn't push harder on <laughs> how is this going to stop? I mean, I just couldn't shake the sense that for some reason we we were going to be spared because we'd been spared by Ebola and MERS and SARS. And there was just all this memory of really dangerous viruses cropping up. And, you know, for complex reasons, it didn't hit the U.S. hard. And even though I, I knew there was nothing to stop it, something in me was just really informed by that past experience, not wanting to panic people. Yeah, I mean, you you were not alone in this, right? Many people were like, this isn't going to happen in this country. We have the best public health system in the world. We have, you know, it, like yeah. we have all yeah. of these defenses. And of course it came as a surprise. I mean, I think one result of this year is, uh, you know, a loss of naivete in a good way. Not yeah. n- the the cost of the loss of that naivete has been extreme. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's something that will help us in the future. I, I hope. I hope. I mean, we're a forgetting type. Yeah. Hopefully, at least for a while. <laughs> Everyone's eyes are more open to both our vulnerabilities and our kind of institutional disarray. Mm-hmm. And all of the structural problems that have caused so much death yeah. this year. So that I will hesitate to say that is a good thing because the cost of that learning has been too high. Yeah. But it has happened. Well, I think there's been a total reorientation of media and scientists, the public health community. Uh, (laughs) This time last year, you turned on the news and you saw a lot of people saying, you know, we just don't know. It's too early. You know, don't panic. You had the Surgeon General saying, don't go by mass. Dr. Fauci saying, we, you know, we just don't know the impulse to just calm people down. And now there's an opposite impulse of we found one case of this variant in this state. This is our top leading news story is how bad is this? And lots of people are willing to say, we don't know. We need to play it really safe. You know, it's a complete reorientation of our our thinking about risk. And I don't know if it'll last, but that's the world has changed dramatically in that way, at least. Do you remember when... um Fauci stopped taking your calls as soon as the pandemic hit. No, not stopped taking my calls, but it was harder to reach him during this last It kind of seemed like he didn't want to talk to you anymore. But now I am. You guys are talking again? Yeah, it had been too long. I was recently re-watching an interview I did with him in, in 2015 where he just basically predicted this whole pandemic. 
Um, really? And said we're not prepared. And, you know, there's this perfect storm of a virus, a respiratory virus, to which the world is immunologically naive. And it spreads quickly, but it's also very fatal. Wait, so what do y'all talk about now? When did you talk to him? I talked to him last week. You um, talked to Fauci last week? Thursday night, yeah. Oh, my God. And I recorded it, and we can play some of it. <gasps> what did you want to ask him about? I wanted, I was hoping he, he, he could reflect on things that he's learned over mm-hmm. the course of this pandemic, specifically about making predictions about the future, because it seems like every time he's on any interview, people are asking him, when do we get to normal? What's the spring like? What's the summer like? What's the fall like? Right. And we should remember that's exactly what we were doing this time last year. And very few of those predictions were right or mm-hmm. heated. And yet we still continue to, to want that certainty. And so I just wanted to know how he thinks about you know dealing with people's demand for certainty and clarity in the future and his knowledge that we just, it's impossible. And it can sometimes be bad when, when you have a megaphone like his, like you change the future when you make a prediction. Mm. Did you do your impression of him for him? <laughs> no. Because I think he would probably be offended. He might start yeah, taking but, your calls well, again. Yeah, probably. So we'll yeah. take it easy. Can we hear you, you talking to Fauci? Let's play some of us. Let's see what from, you discussed. From last week. Okay. So I, I was recently re-watching an interview that you and I did in 2015, and you described this perfect storm scenario of a highly transmissible respiratory virus. Um, yes. And <laughs> do, you, do you consider now that that perfect storm came to pass? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a different version of it. I, I had said almost everything about it was as predicted. One, jump species from an animal reservoir. Two, respiratory born. Three, have a high degree of capability of spreading from human to human. And four, have the ability to cause a great deal of morbidity and mortality. And unfortunately, here we are with 500,000 deaths plus in the United States and 28 million infections and still counting. So using something like this as at least very theoretically possible for quite some time, what has surprised you about the way it actually went down? Well, it shouldn't have been a surprise, James, because pandemics, as they evolve, you learn more and more. So people sometimes think when you're experiencing a pandemic that you know from day one everything about its characteristics. Mm -hmm. The answer is you don't. But then you're going to have to make decisions about policy, about how you're going to approach it, based on the information that is evolving right in front of your eyes. So if it's uncharted waters, you have to go mostly on what your past experience is. The problem with this pandemic is that in some respects, in fact, in many respects, it has defied prior experience. For example, the idea that a virus can, on the one hand, have 30 to 40 percent of all the infections be without symptoms, and on the other hand, absolutely kill a high number of other people. Not a small number, not one-offs, not a little unusual exception, but like kill people to the point of overwhelming medical system in some countries. That is 
completely unprecedented that that happens. Usually, a virus or a pathogen of any sort that has the capability of being so destructive with morbidity and mortality usually makes most people at least a little bit sick. The other thing that was very unusual, and we said it, but we were, we were I, would, I wouldn't say mistaken, but at the end of the day, we were mistaken, that most viruses that are respiratory-born, the bulk of the transmissibility occurs from someone who has symptoms or is a day away from getting symptoms. This virus is the very unusual situation where the recent paper demonstrated that between 50 and 60% of the infections that occur, occur from someone who hasn't no symptoms. Again, that's uncharted territory. So the fact that the Chinese were not particularly transparent with us in those early weeks to a month or so made it that much more difficult. So this virus surprised us by having certain characteristics which we had not seen at all with the prior SARS, just because it very much resembled phylogenetically SARS-CoV-1. It was dramatically different from SARS-CoV-1 in its efficiency to transmit, in the number of people who are asymptomatic. If you want to call that getting surprised, I guess that's getting surprised. But it really is an evolution in real time of understanding something that you never experienced before. Right. Do you think you had a bias in the early days? I, I certainly did, and I, uh, other people did too, about you know, overcalling, of, of, of raising too much alarm, of panicking people. Was that in your mind when you were thinking about communicating risk? this time last year? You know, yeah, you don't want to, you don't ever want to let your desire not to panic people hold you back from something that you definitely know. Mm -hmm. But when you just don't know, you've got to walk a delicate balance between acting properly and appropriately at the same time as not getting people overly panicked in something that very well may not happen. It's a delicate balance. You know, in the beginning, you might recall, we, and this gets mangled by people who like to throw things up at you, saying you flip-flop. You know, you don't flip-flop. You go with what you know. So in the beginning, we were hearing from the Chinese that there really wasn't some community spread. We had, I think at the time, one patient in the United States that was documented to be infected. And people said, would you do anything different now? And my response was, right now, I would not do anything different. But there was a big but that never seems to get linked to my original statement. And the statement was, but this could change rapidly and we have to be prepared for it. And as I'm sure you know, when people want to stick it to you, they say, oh, you said in the beginning that this isn't anything that you do any different. We shouldn't change anything we're doing. You're a reporter, a good reporter. Tell me what you would have thought if we said when you had the first case here that we should absolutely shut the country down. They would have thrown me in jail. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, it just wouldn't have happened. Yeah. It wouldn't have happened. You have this huge platform and you're constantly still being asked, seems like every day, to predict the future. When does this end? What does the summer right. like? What does the fall look like? Um, have you learned lessons over the course of the pandemic about predicting the future? I mean, I know you've been in this field for a very long time, and but has this pandemic changed the way you think about that in terms of... Well, you know, it fortified my belief that depending upon who the reporter is, and, you know, sometimes I think it's maybe the editors and not the reporters, <laughs> that, I, that I will say right now, I must have said it, the reason my voice is bothering me now, and I hope I'm not generating my polyp again that I had to get removed because I give so many interviews. I was on an interview today where I kept on saying, now, when do you think we'll get back to normal? And the answer is, actually, we do not know. But what's your best guess? You know, it's dangerous to guess. But let's say everything falls into place. When do you think that would be? Fall, <laughs> winter. Like I said, you have variants, you have stumbling blocks. It's dangerous to predict. All right, give me the best case scenario. I say, you know, I'll give you the best case scenario, but very often the best case scenario doesn't come out. Well, let's say you do get people vaccinated. When do you think we could start getting back to some form of normality? Well, what do you think form of normality is? I mean, normality is the way it was back in October of 2019, well, you know, who knows how long that's going to take. It may take a long time before we do that. We may need to be wearing masks in 2022 if the variants come in and they, they sort of thwart our vaccination efforts to get everything under control. Bottom line is you can give an estimate, but you can't guarantee. So how does that come out with the press? One, Fauci says we'll have to be wearing masks in 2022. <laughs> I, I didn't say that. I didn't say that at all. Yeah, or no. Fauci says we'll be back to normal by the end of the year. No, I didn't say that either. So my, my, my feeling is that it's almost there's nothing you can do about it. You have to communicate, but you can't control how it gets taken out of context. Okay. okay. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. You're quite welcome. Uh, Anytime. It's good to talk right. to you. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Well, I, I feel like we've all learned a lot this year about public health communication. I have learned only humility. I think there's this tendency to worry about people's expectations. Like, will we panic people if we say this? Yeah. But I also worry about it in the reverse direction. You know, you don't want to say, like, when people say, well, do we need to be alarmist about this? Because if we're not, people will not take it seriously. And I don't want to swing in that direction either. So. Or is what you're <laughs> saying is that this is about balance and nuance? Yeah, I, I guess I'm, I'm more aware of my own, my own biases and I'm worrying less about how, you know, if it caused alarm, so be it. I just, it, it, it just say what you, I talked to Mark Lipsich who made that prediction. For, made what prediction? Um, the 40 to 70%. Prediction. Yeah, yeah. He made it actually a month before you and I spoke about it. Yeah, he was um, like, about 40 to 70% of people are going to get this virus. Yeah. And I asked him, like, what is the, how do you know that point? What is the point where you're, you feel confident bringing that to the public? And he said, just as soon as I 
could make sense of what was going on and I felt reasonably confident about it. I said what I thought and I don't know how to do better than that. Yeah. So one thing I've been thinking about is, you know, he made this prediction last year. Most people are going to get this virus. You wrote a piece, you know, that said you're likely to get the coronavirus. Yeah. Now, we have known many people who have gotten it. Obviously, millions of people have had it in this country. You and I have not. Yeah, not to my knowledge. Not to our knowledge. For me, I think there was a sense at the beginning that there was kind of a a unity feeling. Do you remember this? It was like, we're all in this together. We're all vulnerable to this, and therefore we're all Mm -hmm. in this together. And Mm -hmm. I think what became clear quickly and what has continued to be clear is that, in fact, we live in a country that protects you and me at the expense of other people. Basically, you and I are structurally protected um, Mm -hmm. by being able to work at home, by having access to health care, by being white and having enough money. You know, so many, so many of these things are part of the reason we didn't get it or haven't gotten it yet. And I don't know what my lesson is there, but I do think I've spent a lot of time this year thinking about, you know, the structure of our society and and where we are in it, given that what is our responsibility as human beings and as journalists. Um, In a way, you were right. Most people were likely to get it, but some people were very unlikely to get it structurally, and we're included in that. Yeah. It didn't have to be that way. Yeah. It it didn't have to be like you're likely to get it. It was just based on the response we were seeing, based on the vulnerabilities and the lack of a plan the writing was sadly on the wall Mm -hmm. but you know over the course of the year as we spoke we saw these sort of structural solutions where the answer if 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 you propose the idea of a pandemic relief bill in prior times it probably would have been you would imagine medications and masks and soap and stuff that's just like very medical but Mm -hmm. it really turned out that what was needed were was economic relief. It was all kind of structural, economic, social supports. Like that that was the real weakness that right. we had. I think we have a unique moment right now where we're able to pass, say, you know, a one-time enormous bill mm-hmm. that could potentially set into motion some some policies that are kept up. But ultimately, as I, I know our colleague Ed Young has written about, we cycle between panic and neglect. And we, that's a sort of phenomenon in all kinds of health <laughs> behaviors mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that we are in right now, a panic phase of hypervigilance. Mm-hmm. And a lot could be done in the next, in the coming months to make some of these changes concrete. Yeah. But we also might see these, see numbers get better, see deaths plummet and start to just move our attention onto something else and let a lot of this momentum fade. Yeah. I mean, my home state of Texas uh, ha- really has moved, has fast forwarded to the neglect portion. Um, yeah. I think it was, it's the first state to lift the mask order, right? It, it, other states have, um, other states never even had them. I think Texas did it in the most bombastic way. <laughs> well, I mean, that's our style. But d- yeah. don't, uh, you know, <laughs> don't judge us for our style, but judge us for our decisions, which are idiotic um well they're not idiotic they're very calculated you know the calculation being made here is uh a political one and it's so cruel 
It's like sacrificing people's health and lives for political gain. I, is that over the line to say? No, that I mean that. I mean, it just feels like that's of... what it is so blatantly. And you know, plenty of states got into more trouble than they should have for political reasons, including New York, where you are and where I was at the beginning. So, I, I guess that is a sign that makes me worried that no, nothing will be learned. Nothing yeah. will be learned. It's this sort of derailment into an area of it's you don't have two parties arguing about the best approach to the pandemic you have a party saying masks are dumb and we're done with them Mm -hmm. not like proposing another solution (laughs) uh there's not two competing schools of thought about what to do there's a a a, a compete competition between we should do something and we should not do something yeah i mean i've already like in the week since it was announced seen tons of maskless people my um you know, people I know who work uh, as essential workers are already having, uh, you know, having fights with customers. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, basically what it does is places the burden on essential workers to enforce um, what should be a state mandate. And it draws the pandemic out. I mean, it keeps it going. That No, it's nonsensical. But I guess the point is, I don't know that our political incentives are not, don't seem like they've changed. But I do think a lot of people have changed. I don't know. Oh, yeah. There has been a lot of, like, person-to-person and individual communities. I think there has been a lot of change. For as much as this has not been an equal equal opportunity tragedy that people have suffered so differently, a pandemic like this is as close as we will ever come to universal human tragedy. You know, It really has touched the entire world in some way, even the wealthy people. I mean, they were affected by profiting massively off of it in many cases but it changed their lives Uh, we all lived through it and we've had this shared experience which tends to be a cohesive factor even when it's a negative one we have gone through something together Mm -hmm. Um, and hopefully there's some social cohesion and some understanding i think there is i think there is in moments of crisis a lot of bullshit falls away not all of it do you think we might use this as an opportunity to set up actually a better healthcare system or to you know, equalize some of the great inequalities that have that have led to a lot of the death? I'm not extremely optimistic. Why? I, I think this this $1.9 trillion bill that has just passed is historic in what it's gesturing at, but we tend to go in cycles where there will be people complaining of big government spending and there'll be a resurgence in people who think $1.9 trillion handouts are... It's just really easy to brand as this big government thing that people tend to not like and vote against and we cycle away from it and then things get repealed and paired back and we're back in the same place. Mm -hmm. Uh, It requires too much complexity and long-term thinking to want to really prepare for a pandemic. We've shown that over and over again. Um, But, but I mean, to push back, I mean, I am all for uh, preemptively having the most negative possible view so that you're not disappointed (laughs) when something bad happens. But the package that was just passed includes a guaranteed income for families with children. That's, you know, at least some iteration of a universal basic income, which we talked, I remember we talked to Annie about earlier in the pandemic. It's an idea that was basically really, really far out there a couple of years ago. Andrew Yang helped popularize it. But like, it's actually, you know, that idea, which felt impossible beforehand, is slowly kind of normalizing that you might actually, you know, guarantee a, a, a certain 
level of security for people, you don't think that's a real change? No, you're right. It's easy to lose sight over the such a long, uh, what feels like it's been a decade. That actually is a big change. It was about this time last year, I talked to Paul Farmer and he was one of the people who was throwing that idea out there as something like the best you can do is kind of just make people feel secure in a moment like this right. and how important that is. And it felt like, I'll write a piece about cash payouts, but it's not actually something that will happen. And then they happen under Trump. And then they happened again now, finally, very delayed Ali. But there's this precedent now that people will be able to point to and say, like, this is something that is within our capacity to do. Yeah, right. So maybe. Okay. Maybe I should be more optimistic. The thing that has been kind of a guiding help to me this year and that I hope to take forward is this idea that Lori Gottlieb introduced to us very early, which was this, this idea of both and that yes. two contradictory things can be true at the same time. And that that was the only way we were going to get through this is allow. I mean, we talked to her about it in the context of, you know, early on, it was like, is it okay to laugh at something? Like, this is so terrible, but can I have fun sometimes? Is, is that okay? And this is a wide scale version of this, but everybody has this at difficult moments. It's like, there's, you know, how do you reconcile the fact that good things happen in the midst of tragedies and, you know, vice versa. And so I've tried to keep that in my mind. And I do think that's something that we can apply moving forward. It's something we can apply to this stimulus package too. Like, you know, the cost of this incremental move towards sort of a, what many people think is a totally sensible <laughs> public policy uh, has been way too high. So it's not that it's a purely good thing that this came about, but we can celebrate certain things and recognize the terrible things that came with them or enabled them at the same time. Both things can be true. If anything, that's kind of like the theme of the show. They're the biggest thing I've taken away over the past year. And I've tried to apply it to not just emotions, but like the idea of certainty and uncertainty um, mm -hmm. that I was asking Dr. Fauci about and that I keep getting You know, for the past year. I've been asked to predict the future and people want certainty and I know that. Yeah, you can have certainty about some things and uncertainty about about others. And that's the best I can give in this pandemic. You have certainty about, say, these vaccines right now. You have certainty about the need for ventilation and masks. And I can give you good certainty on those things. And there are other places you have to live with uncertainty. It's not a choice, though. Well, yeah, tell me, looking forward to next year. You know, we've been through a year, this arbitrary marker of time. I, a year ago, I asked you, what will the next year look like? So I'm going to ask you again. What will the next year look like? Tell me which things you're certain about and which things you're uncertain about. I'm very certain that these vaccines are great, uh, that they're safe and very effective. And I'm not entirely certain, but very optimistic that the variants will not outsmart these vaccines to any significant degree within that year. And I'm optimistic that a lot of communities will be able to see cases go really low and get back to something that's close to normal if they're able to vaccinate widely. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm certain that our death counts are going to fall. Um, barring some radical mutation that changes the nature of the disease, that we will at least have protected our most vulnerable populations, older people and people with chronic diseases, in, in such a way that you'll see a lot less death and severe you know, ICU type illness. And that should just make everything a lot less scary. It doesn't mean at all that we give up. Mm -hmm. What are you uncertain about? I'm uncertain about how far we can get with vaccination. 
And that is, that's the huge question, you know, a world where or even a state or a city where you get to 50% vaccination versus 90% vaccination is a completely different future. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. Neither one of them is this abject fear and chaos that we saw last year. But a 50% city is one where you no one is going to feel comfortable. Even vaccinated people, you might feel comfortable with your little vaccinated circle and your family, but out right. in public, if you if you know the virus is still prevalent and you're still losing a uh, hundred or so people a day, yeah. So that's a very different future than if we get to ninety percent. You drive cases down to almost nothing, and you can see any given area. You know how much vaccination has there been? How many cases are there? How many deaths are there? And you could get really comfortable feeling like, okay, I'm vaccinated. There's almost no virus here because everyone else got vaccinated. We drove it out. Life is good. Yeah. I'm certain that those two futures are both possible. <laughs> I'm got uncertain it. about which one will so come we to will, So we will continue to live in the both end and get better at reconciling those things. Yeah. But we do have a tree army. Yeah. That's exciting for you. I, I will <laughs> say that the thing that struck me this year is that... Uh, that my kind of big both and is um, you can be really obnoxious and really nice at the same time. You personally, just, Jim, you're, you're, me? it's yeah. Yeah. And I've just like learned to reconcile those two things, seemingly contradictory <laughs> things. You can be like the least funny person ever. Oh, wow. And also like a little bit funny sometimes. A little it's charming. Strange. Yeah. Like a little bit. Um, Anyway, that's the huh. thing that I've really reconciled this year is is that, uh, yeah, I appreciate well, you, even though you're annoying. Oh, I don't know what to do with that, but I'll think about it. <laughs> I, I appreciate you uh, without any caveat. Yeah, sure. I No, but I appreciate everyone who's listened this year. It's been such a wonderful... I, I mean, I, start, I started this year very, like, isolated and terrified. And, and uh, the idea that so many people have, um, you know, written us and given us so many interesting things to think about. So many people have given their time to talk to us. And mm -hmm. uh, I really appreciate that. That is one of the very positive things about this year. I also want to say I appreciate the people who have helped us make this show um, behind the scenes. Kevin Townsend has been making every single show sort of guiding us and helping us be more useful and less ridiculous than we are. Uh, Kevin, do you have things you're looking forward to this year? Oh, God, you're going to pull me onto the show. I am. What are you looking forward to? I, I mean, it's I'm sitting here looking at it this like warm, sunny day and vaccinations are happening. And I just it does feel like things are waking up again. And I'm just looking forward to seeing people. I feel like it's it's like a real possibility. To like yeah see and be with other people soon and i'm, I'm yeah what was your uh, favorite moment in the show oh God. kevin <laughs> well i've been listening back to the very early episodes uh in preparation for this and just kind of thinking about things and i remember one thing that struck me was the second episode where after Catherine had gotten her cvs stuff she'd sort of like started reading the news again and had gotten truly spooked and said that it was your tone of voice that was like, that was kind of spooking her because usually you're the person to like deflate and lighten and, and make a pun. Well, not a pun. <laughs> oh, sorry, a bad joke. They're, they're synonyms in my mind as much as I love them. But I like that we've been able to lighten, but also 
be somber at the same time. I feel like that's been really helpful to do that both and. I'm, I'm just yeah. seconding that, I guess. Well, thank you, Kevin. Yeah, thank you, Kevin. Uh, AC Valdez, I'm also going to make you talk. This AC joined us in the fall and has been helping us make this show. AC, what are you looking forward to? Um, I'm really looking forward to sitting at a bar and talking with somebody whose life I know nothing about. I think that's really like, if there's one thing I'm craving and missing, it's the ability to just like actually be out in the neighborhood that I moved to. Yeah. Like almost a year ago. Exactly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I chose this area because it's got like nice restaurants and like a whole diversity of people. And like, I haven't been able to enjoy that. And it's a little sad, but I'm really, really excited about like, this summer and Jim's optimism for the summer has actually been carrying me a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for working on this show. With yeah. Us. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you to Alvin Melleth who isn't on the call, but he helped us in the early days and, uh, and I'll ask him offline what he's looking forward to. And he's doing good work on the experiment now. I yeah. Understand. Yeah. He has, uh, we're, we're have this new show, the experiment, which is, you know, in many ways, an exploration of many of the things we've talked about on this show, just in a different way. So check out that. So Jim, what's the future yeah. of this show? This feels very like this is our last episode, but it's not. You're the boss. I, it's not. It's not our last episode, but I think we should. It's a moment to think about what would be useful to listeners. So if people could let us know, you know, yeah, what would be helpful for you. I would love to keep doing things, even though if the nature of the, the situation changes and it, we'll have new problems. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have, the problems will try end. to have new solutions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if you have thoughts, thank you to everyone who took the survey, by the way, that was really helpful. But our email is social distance at the Atlantic.com. Our voicemail line is 202-642-6487. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, especially to those of you who have subscribed to The Atlantic to support the show. If you haven't, you can do that at theatlantic.com slash support us. That's the link that you can use that helps us know you came from the podcast. And um, yeah, we will continue. Um, but we would love your feedback on what you're curious about moving forward. And just let us know, like, is Jim funny or is he obnoxious? Just, just put that in the email, too. Does a show called Social Distance make sense after you don't have to social distance? Yep. Yep. But also like, is, is Jim funny? Yes or no? Yeah, whatever. I read all the emails. I wish I could respond to more and uh, I will read whatever you say, whether it's funny or not, and I'll internalize it. <laughs> okay. Jim, thank you for being a friend this year. Yeah. I really thank appreciate you for coming it. back uh, and hanging out with us, Catherine. It was good. Yeah. To yeah. No, I'll be back to soon. Um, I'll be back soon. Maeve's going to keep hanging out with us, which is delightful. Um, I'm going to keep working on the experiment. We'll keep talking uh, onward. Okay. All right. Talk to you later. Take care. Bye. Bye. <laughs>